Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear Saints, Merry Christmas again. And I know it's hard to believe, but that account of Herod slaughtering the little children is indeed the gospel lesson for the second Sunday of Christmas. It's not popular, but today we focus on the darker side of the first Christmas, when King Herod executed the innocent children two years and under in an attempt to murder Jesus. Uh, This event in in the church is called uh, the Slaughter of the Innocents. Now, it was King Herod who did this. Herod was a very, very evil man. Uh, He earned the name Herod the Great, uh, though because he enlarged and expanded the temple in Jerusalem. He made it beautiful, and that's why he earned that name. But apart from that, apart from this feat, everything else he did was very ugly. And his greatness consisted in that he was a cruel and a bloodthirsty tyrant. In fact, he was so power-hungry and paranoid that if he was suspicious of anyone, he would order them to be executed. In fact, he had nearly every family member of his family put to death who even had the chance or the possibility of ascending and taking his throne. When his own wife and his sister cried because they saw Herod kill uh, their own family and loved ones, What do you think Herod did? He killed them for crying for them. He killed his own wife and his sister. And when he wasn't sure that three of his own sons actually loved him, he put them to death too. Caesar Augustus, who was the first Roman emperor, said this about Herod. He said, it is safer to be Herod's pig than it is to be his own son. Herod was a very evil, and he was a very crazy man. People feared him, but nobody loved him, and he knew this. So he came up with a plan that before he died, he commanded that his most trusted soldiers would carry out his last will and testament, his final act. And since Herod was afraid that no one would mourn his death when he died or be sad when he died, He came up with a plan to make people sad on the day that he died. The moment Herod would die, he ordered his soldiers to arrest the most beloved and distinguished people in that kingdom, to label them as traitors, and then to bury them alive. So with all this being said, it comes as absolutely no surprise that Herod would command the execution of every male child in Bethlehem two years and under in an attempt to get rid of Jesus, who was labeled the king of the Jews, the one who would rule over him. If he executed his own wife and sisters and sons, then it was nothing for him to call out the death of infants whom he never met, who were just a few days old. And that's what he did. 
Now, I wish I could tell you that Herod was an isolated example of a really evil and wicked man. But the truth is, he's not the only evil man in history. And neither is he the most evil man in history. Believe it or not, we've seen even eviler things. There are many Herods, many people who do evil and wicked things. We see this uh, in things like the Holocaust or the uh, terrorist attacks on 9-11. We see countless and ongoing kidnappings and child trafficking and abuse and abortions, murders, terrorism, and so on. On top of that, we also see not only the stuff that we do to ourselves and to each other, but we see the suffering caused by illness and disease, the suffering from viruses, deaths by persecution, disaster from hurricanes, earthquakes, and the like. And more than all of this, we also know our own suffering, our own diseases in our bodies right now, our own illness, our own poverty, our own suffering, our pain, the losing of our own children, the fearing of our own impending death, and so on. So why am I saying all of this on the second Sunday of Christmas? Well, it's because whenever we get to this part of the Christmas season, to this specific gospel lesson for today, year after year, someone will ask me this question. They will say, why would God allow this? Why would he permit Herod to have so much power and allow him to commit such evil? Why would he allow so many other people, not just Herod, to do the same thing throughout all of the years? And why would he let these little infants die like this? And what they're really asking is this. How can you possibly talk of a good God when there's so much evil in the world? How can you say that God is love when he allows and permits these things to happen? Dear saints, this in theology is called the problem of evil. It is the conundrum that we wrestle with in our minds and within our soul. The truth that God is all powerful, that he is all knowing. He knows everything, that he is all benevolent. That is, he's good. He is loving and righteous and holy. And yet... Evil still exists. We have a good God who is in control of everything. And so the question is, why does evil happen? There are a number of reasons why people ask this question, but I'm going to focus on the most popular one, the one that most people bring up that I've heard of in the past six years uh, being a pastor. It's the one I already alluded to. It's called the evidential problem. This is, what, uh, this is what someone does when they simply look around and just see so much evil in the world. And so as a result of that, as, as a result of what they perceive, they conclude that there must not really be a God because of the overwhelming evidence and the amount of evil in the world. So all of these collective experiences of evil convince them that the world is just random chaos. There's no rhyme or reason to it. And because of that, because of all that wickedness, that must mean God doesn't exist. That just must mean there's no point to this life. There's no justice. There's nothing to this. Now, there's a very dangerous trap that people fall into, and that is when they try to answer the question. Uh, They try to solve the problem to this problem of evil, that God is good, that he is all-powerful, and that evil exists. So uh, many years ago, there was a, a rabbi by the name of Harold Kushner 
There's a Jewish rabbi who wrote a book called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And this was a very popular book that a lot of people read. In fact, many Christians read this too. In this book, he tries to solve the problem of evil. And he says, look, there are only two possibilities for why evil exists. Uh, The first possibility is either that God is not actually all-powerful. He's not omnipotent. Or the second reason is that he is omnipotent, he is all-powerful, but he's not actually good. He doesn't actually love. So the reason evil still happens in the world is because either one of these two things has to go. Either God is not powerful enough to stop it or that God uh, can stop it, but he doesn't actually want to. He he wants us to suffer. So that's what this rabbi uh, uh, brings us to, this fork in the road in this book. Uh, Now, what do you think his conclusion was? What do you think his answer to this problem of evil was? Well, he said it's the former, that God is not all-powerful. He's good, but he's just not strong enough to do it. In other words, he's saying, come on, guys. Look, God is doing the best he can. Just give him a break. He's really trying. He's really trying his best to keep things together. He wants things to go well, but he just can't do it. So it's overwhelming. There's so many things happening. So he's just doing the best he can. Uh, somehow, this guy thought that that's supposed to comfort people who are suffering, that God is not in control. Now, just imagine the reverse of that situation. Imagine that God is all-powerful, however, that he's not really good. To me, that's worse. That's worse. That means that God is the author of evil. That means that he delights in it, that he wants, he desires the death of the wicked. He, he desires these things. Now, this is the problem that's set before us. If we choose the one or the other, we end up with a God who is not God. Now, it doesn't stop there. Good, good, good intentioned and well-meaning Christians get themselves into more trouble when they try to answer the problem for themselves or for others. I've heard many Christians say with good motivations uh, something that will lead people to despair. When someone is suffering and they say, I don't know why this is happening to me. Why is this happening to me? Why did I lose my child? Why do I have cancer? Why am I dying so young? So uh, whatever it might be. Some will respond saying, well, you know, this is just God punishing you for your sin. This is just God's punishment. Uh, In fact, this is what happened years ago, many years ago, uh, when New Orleans was hit by Hurricane Katrina. Pat Robertson said that they were hit with that devastating hurricane because the people in New Orleans were such horrendous sinners. And then shortly after, he said the same thing about Haiti, that Haiti was struck with an earthquake because the Haitians sometime in the past made a pact with uh, the devil and God was punishing them with a hurricane for that specific sin. On 9-11, some pastors did the same thing. They said that this was God's judgment on America, on New York, for very specific sins. Now, I hear Christians do this all the time. They, without thinking twice about it, they'll speak definitively about things that they don't know. They will speak definitively and say that God is acting in a way that he hasn't revealed. He hasn't said one way or the other what he's doing. Uh, They'll say that God is executing a specific judgment or punishment 
for a specific sin. So they'll make some sort of connection or draw a correlation and assert some sort of conclusion. They'll say to, uh, this to other Christians, they'll say things like, well, look, God is just testing you to see if you're really faithful, to see if you really trust him. Or that God is just trying to teach you something in this. That's why he's making you suffer this way. That's why you lost your child. That's why uh, you, you're, you have this awful disease. So you didn't learn your lesson last time. So you better learn it this time. So it doesn't happen again. Uh, th- this is awful. This is very, very bad. None of this is helpful and none of this is comforting. Even more, it's not biblical and it's not true. In theology, <clears throat> there is a word for all of this, and it is called theodicy. It comes from two Greek, Greek words, uh, theos, which means God, and uh, dike, which means judgment. And not, so, so together, it's an attempt to judge uh, God or justify God, to give an answer for God. It's an, an attempt to defend him. So it's an attempt to give a reason or an explanation why God is allowing this specific evil. Uh, what we're doing when we engage in theodicy is essentially we place ourselves in the judge's seat in God's seat. We sit in his seat and we begin to ask him questions. We start to grill him and interrogate him and we start to judge God. And we tell him that he doesn't know how to run this world very well. Imagine that. We tell him that we know how to be a better God a more loving God, a more God in control than he knows how. And so we look at God as like some sort of employee who made a mistake and now has to give us an answer to the boss. Or like a student who misbehaved in class. Or like a child who has to give an answer to his parents. We tell God to justify his actions and we demand an answer as to why he's doing what he's doing, why he allows what he allows, why he allowed the slaughter of the innocents, why he permits what he permits. Now, this is the problem. There's not just a problem in trying to answer the question of the problem of evil, but there is a problem in simply even asking the question. Do you see how we're tempted to hold ourselves above God in this respect, to look down on him and to make him answer us? Who do we think we are that we would question God like this? How highly do we think of ourselves or how lowly do we think of God? I I say this, I say this as one who is guilty of the same sin, of thinking the same thing, of wrestling with the same thing, who has engaged in theodicy in my mind and wrestled with it in my soul, who has questioned God and looked down on God's goodness because of the evil and suffering that is around me. until, Until a pastor called me to repentance and put me in place, in my place when I was younger. And this is what I learned. But God tells us that he is all-powerful. Matthew 19, 26 says, with God, all things are possible. And God also tells us that he is all-good. 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. And these things remain true no matter how much evil or suffering you see or experience in the world. In fact, trying to answer the problem of evil is spiritual peril. It is 
prideful. And it shows that you neither fear, love, or trust in God as you should. The, bo- the bottom line is this. This is the main point. God is God, and you and I are not. We don't know everything. God has hidden things from our eyes. He has hidden a part of himself that we don't know, a part of his will that he, uh, for some reason, has chosen not to reveal to us. It's something that we don't know and can't know. In Isaiah chapter 55, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than yours. So, repent. And don't engage in theodicy. Don't speak about things we don't know. Speak about things that God has hidden from us. Don't try to defend God either. Don't try and speak for him or answer for him. God speaks for himself and he does just fine. So we simply say what God says. And we don't even dare to speak when he has remained silent. We don't ever dare to put words in his mouth and tell others what he is doing when he has not revealed it. When you wrestle with this problem of evil in your soul, you simply need to have the discipline to remember that it's okay that you don't know the answer. And it's okay that God hasn't revealed it. When someone asks you, why am I suffering like this? Fill in the blank. It's okay for you to say, I don't know. And when you are suffering and are met with sorrow and sadness and saying, why is this happening? Why did this event happen? It's okay for me as your pastor to tell you and for you to hear, I don't know. And that's the point. I don't know what and why you went through what you went through or why you are now suffering what you are suffering. I don't know. But God does. God knows. And the same God who has hidden this from you is the same God who has revealed his deep and undying love for you. And if you want to know what God thinks of you, you don't peer into the things that you don't know about. You look rather at the things you do know about. If you want to know if God is love, if he loves you, if he cares for you in the midst of your suffering, what, you don't look into your heart. You don't look into the world. You look into his word. You look at the cross and you see straight ahead that he loves you and he absolutely adores you. You see the thorns sticking in his brow, in his face the holes in his hands and his feet and the blood pouring out and you see how good a God you have, that he exchanges his life for yours. You see that Jesus died to cancel your debt, your debt of sin, how he willingly and gladly endured all of the evil of this world against himself to save you. All right, uh, before I close, I want to say one more thing. Many of you know uh, the late Reverend Paul McCain, uh, the brother of Phil McCain and the uncle of Jenny Pierce. Uh, He was the general editor of the reader's edition of the Lutheran Confessions. That was a big book that Zion just bought for all of the families here and the author of a lot of other writings. Uh, 
Well, many of you also know that Paul died very suddenly and unexpectedly of a heart attack alone in his own home at the age of 58. Uh, the entire synod, um, the entire synod was shocked by his death. And many people had questions. <clears throat> many people had questions in their, in their mind and in their soul. And the question was this, why did this happen? Right? This man dedicated his life to the gospel, and this is how he dies. Right? Uh, why did this happen? Why did, it, why did God allow it? I think the best response to this question, the, the best response as to why this happened, is the response that he himself gave before he died. Uh, as you know, he was a very clear and bold confessor of the Christian faith. He had a series of interviews on uh, on the radio uh, called Issues, etc., uh, about the Lutheran confessions and about theology. Well, a few days, uh, less than a week before he died, he was, before he was taken from this veil of tears into the arms of his dear Father in heaven forever, he recorded one last interview. And these are the last publicly recorded words that he said before he died what seems like a senseless or meaningless death. <clears throat> he said this, he goes, it's hard to accept and understand that the Lord would allow at this time, this pandemic to upend everything in our lives. Uh, now, I, I think you can just insert just about any disaster or any suffering here in this blank, not just pandemic. <clears throat> he then goes on to say this, he says, let's be honest. We have had it good, so good for so long. Even now, what we are going through now, the present sufferings that we go through cannot compare to what we will receive in heaven. What we have received right now by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And what we are still receiving through the means of grace. And then he goes on to say this. He says, God is in control. God has joined himself to us in Christ Jesus the only God who we know is the one who is incarnate in the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who is true God and true man. So, yes, he is still in control. And maybe at times like this, we should look to those Bible verses that we read often without thinking about. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Romans eight twenty eight. And then he says, all things, not just the good things, all things. And this, dear saints, is your comfort and your eternal consolation. When it comes to your suffering, God has not given you an answer. But what he has given you is a promise. And he says, for those who love God, all things, not just good things, not just some things, not just, not even most things, but everything, all things, the slaughter of the innocents, the uh, senseless death, dying at home alone, the loss of your loved one, the disease you have, all of these things, the scriptures say, work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
If God worked the agony of Christ on the cross, his bitter suffering and death, the greatest evil and atrocity, the most senseless and unjust act to have ever happened in the history of the world. If he worked the cross for your good, for your salvation, to benefit you, to make your life better, to give you joy everlasting that will never fade. Do you think that God cannot work your pain and suffering, the smaller thing, for good. Of course he will. And that is because Jesus earned the forgiveness of your sins and earned for you life and salvation through his death and suffering. And his suffering transforms your suffering to good. His pain, your pain, and his death, your death. Your illness and your disease and your sorrow, and your unanswered questions, and your sadness, and your pain, and your discomfort, and your tears, and your tragedy, and your poverty, and your loss, and your trouble, all of this, God says, is not in vain. Not one second of it is in vain. But God will work it for your ultimate good. There's not a second or an ounce of misery and pain that you can endure in this life that the Lord has not ordained for your good. God is conforming you to the image of his son. So you may have a lot of questions, but the one thing you never need to question in this life is what God thinks of you. You look to Jesus and you see he poured out his soul through his veins. This is no mystery and he has clearly revealed it to you. So God has not given you a rational answer to the problem of evil. But what he has done is he has become the answer and the solution to our problem of evil. He took on flesh to be the end of our sorrow and death. And he turned his cross into an empty tomb and he will do the same for you. So trust in him. He is still in control. Even this year, even no matter what may come, whatever, what, whatever may come this year or the years or the days or the rest of your life, whatever difficulty or sorrow, God is still in control even when it seems like he is not. He is still good and he still loves you even when it feels like he doesn't. And he's still working things for the good even when you don't understand it. He loves you. And he works things for your ultimate good. So trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. Amen. Hear the words of this hymn. What God ordains is always good. He is my friend and father. He suffers not to do me harm, though many storms may gather. Now I may know both joy and woe. Someday I shall see clearly that he hath loved me dearly. What God ordains is always good. This truth remains unshaken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, I shall not be forsaken. I fear no harm, for with his arm he shall embrace and shield me. So to my God I yield me. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.